And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, there are popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone. There are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Siadian. And today we are going to discuss the topic of covenant theology with our guest, Dr. Lee Irons. Welcome back to the show, Lee. Hello, Matt and Onyx. Good to be with you again. Yeah, welcome back, Lee. Great to have you. Yeah, it's great to have you, man. It's been a while. What, almost a year, I think? Uh, our last like one that. was in February. Okay. Wow. So about eight eight months ago. And how has the whole COVID era been treating you? <laughs> oh well, you know it's it's a challenge, but um, fortunately the Lord is helping me to get through it, and I'm uh, thankful that I still have a job, and uh, even though I'm working Amen. from home, but <laughs> it's new way yep. of life. But uh, I just take it one day at a time and. Trust in God's grace and the, the comfort of knowing that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including the COVID crisis, but also the political turmoil and the riots and everything. Very yeah. time right now, a lot of unsettling things happening. And so, it's just so, very comforting to know that God is working mm-hmm. all things together for his glory and for our good. Amen. So we can get an amen and an oive. Amen. The same thing. <laughs> um, so you've been getting a lot of reading done, I'm sure, huh? Yeah, actually, uh, when the pandemic first hit, so back in like April and May, I did a lot of reading on covenant theology, which is our topic for tonight. So that's <laughs> kind of relevant. Right. I wanted to read up on, you know, all of the, the major uh, reformed systematic theologians. Mm-hmm. I read uh, Turretin, Witsius, Charles Hodge, Bavink, Turretin. I already mentioned that. Um, so just wanted to make sure I got a good grasp of what historical reformed covenant theology or federal theology thought. Oh, Thomas Boston. That was the other name I was okay. trying to think of when I said Turretin oh, oh. twice. The Marrow Man, huh? Yes. I love the Marrow Man. Yeah, so do I. That's awesome. Um, are you writing anything right now, Lee? 
I'm always working on different projects, but um, I'm one thing that's on the back burner that I'm continually collecting information on and outlines and so on is covenant theology. So maybe someday I'll work something up on that. One, one thing I recently did was a, a word study to try to collect together all of the Greek and Hebrew, but mostly Hebrew terminology for covenants. But not mm -hmm. just the term covenant, berit, but also all of the the verbs that go with that, like to make a covenant or cut a covenant or to establish a covenant or to break a covenant or transgress a covenant. And <laughs> all the related terminology of oaths, oaths are the key. So whenever there's an oath, that's always related to a covenant. Mm -hmm. um, and also other related terms like uh, terms for God's covenant faithfulness, um, chesed, which is one of these difficult words to translate, but it can sometimes mean grace or mercy or covenant faithfulness. Uh, so just getting a good lay of the land of all of the technical terms that are used in scripture for covenants and all the related elements of a covenant um, mm -hmm. was very enlightening, very helpful. Well, since you started getting into definitions and such, why don't we jump right in and talk about covenant theology and let me ask you the first question, what is a covenant and what is covenant theology? All right. So I'll give you uh, Meredith Klein's definition of a covenant. He defines covenant as an oath-bound commitment. So I already just mentioned that, that uh, whenever you see a covenant transaction in Scripture, it's always, well, not always, but very often it is uh, accompanied by taking an oath and uh who takes the oath whether it's god or man uh dictates or determines what type of covenant it is so if it's a covenant of works a covenant that's based on the works principle then it's man who takes the oath and a good example of that would be israel at mount sinai um, where god reveals the the terms of the covenant i'm the lord your god and gives them the Ten Commandments and all the other laws that go with that. And the people of Israel responded to that by saying, um, all that God has spoken, we will do. And uh, later on, when they get into the land, they set up um, these pillars, these rocks on Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and there's the blessings and the curses. And may we be accursed if we do not keep all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Mm-hmm. So whenever man takes the oath and puts himself under a potential curse for not keeping the oath, that's a covenant of works. A covenant of grace is always uh, in operation. You can always tell it's in operation when God is the one who takes the oath. And the classic example of that is the Abrahamic covenant uh, in Genesis 15. And God is the one who swears the oath and says, by myself I have sworn. And you know, he promises to Abraham, to your seed, I will give this land as an absolute, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's totally God. God is the one who's going to do it. He's saying, may I become a curse if I fail to keep it, which we know is impossible for God. Uh, and so it's purely hypothetical, but it's God's way of showing how serious he is to grant assurance to man that he is going to keep his promise. So oath-bound commitment is the definition of covenant, and then who takes the oath? determines what type of covenant it is. Okay. Now, as to your second question, what is covenant theology? 
covenant theology is a uh, stream of biblical interpretation that arguably goes back before the Reformation. You probably find uh, antecedents of it in the Apostolic Fathers, the Church Fathers, Augustine, and so on. But really, it gets developed in the time of the Reformation, particularly in the Swiss Reformation, with uh, theologians like um, Martin Bucer, Heinrich Bullinger, uh, John Calvin, who really saw covenant as a key biblical motif for understanding uh, our relationship with God in the covenant of grace. But covenant theology developed after the early reformers uh, into the 17th century and became more elaborate. Uh, the covenant of works was developed in the late, very end of the 16th century and solidified in the 17th century and uh, becomes more formalized um, in the Protestant scholastics uh, like Turretin, Witsius, and so on. Lee, when you said it was uh, solidified in the 17th century, how so? What exactly happened? The main development is clearly distinguishing between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. So uh, the covenant of grace is the covenant that God makes with his people concerning salvation, the promise of the gospel, and the only condition is faith uh, to receive the promise of the gospel. That's the same covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 15. Uh, it even goes back before that to the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. But the covenant of redemption is the covenant behind the covenant of grace. It's an intra-Trinitarian covenant between the Father and the Son. And it has to do with Christ's role as the second Adam who undertakes to fulfill the broken terms of the covenant of works in the garden. And uh, the covenant of redemption is an eternal covenant. It goes back before time. It's, uh, it's not made with uh, God's people per se. It's made with Christ as the second Adam. And then we, re we receive the benefits of that. So the covenant of grace is the administration in history and time of the covenant of redemption. So that distinction between the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption was not made by the early stage of covenant theology. It was made later in the um, early, in like the 1630s, 40s, somewhere in there. Mm -hmm. So the covenant of grace flows out of the covenant of redemption, basically. Yeah. So, but that means that there are two main views within covenant theology. Even somebody like Thomas Boston, who's later, he's like 1720s, uh, he, he ended up just going back to only two covenants, saying covenant of works and covenant of grace, and he combined mm -hmm. the covenant of redemption with the covenant of grace. Right. Basically, saying, basically what he did is he defined the covenant of grace as the covenant between the Father and the Son. And so there is no covenant of grace distinct from it although he did acknowledge that it had to be applied and received by the covenant community in history. So the nature of a covenant, again, is an agreement or a compact? We can put it that way? Um, no, I don't, I don't agree with that definition because it's too... Um, there, are, there are human covenants like that. Um, mm -hmm. you know, in, in, in Genesis, for example, you find... Uh, barites or covenants being made between Abraham and right. Abimelech and things like that. And those are like agreements. 
But those are like two parties coming together as equals, making an agreement together on how they're going to treat each other going forward. You know, mm. they were having disputes over wells and things like that. But in, in biblical covenants, when we're talking about biblical covenants, the covenant of works with Adam in the garden, the covenant of grace, or the covenant of redemption, it's not really wise to use that terminology of agreement or compact. Because you quite often hear that, right, by popularizers. They often use that, that definition. Yeah, uh, but, yeah. It, it, and it's not, I mean, there's nothing pernicious about it. It's just right. that it's misleading because it's too human. It's too, it, it uses the human analogy when we're talking about theological covenants, theological covenants between God and Adam or God and Israel or the Father and the Son. And so in these theological covenants, we have to kind of shy away from that sort of humanistic two parties coming together as equals and making an agreement. Oh, I see. And we, yeah. and we have to emphasize strongly that God is the Lord of the covenant. And we, we are submitting to it. It's not, it's not something that we didn't negotiate it with God and then come to an agreement. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, right, right, right. It's not, it's not like going down to the car dealer and saying, you know what, let's, let's make this a deal. Let's make a deal out of this, right? right. I get it, yeah. Also, you see in, I agree with what you said, Lee, and also you see in scripture uh, that God uh, swears by himself. Right. Yeah, and so that would, uh, that would continue your thought in regards to, it's not consistent in regards to the covenant perspective because he didn't, he didn't need a second party in order to create that covenant or that swearing. He just swore in regards to uh, just by himself, right. with himself. Yeah. Right, so ultimately they're unilateral in nature. Right. Um, so what do we mean by a covenant of works? So the covenant of works is the covenant that God made with Adam before the fall in the garden. And uh, it is encapsulated and summarized in Genesis 2.17. When God said, you know, he commanded Adam and said, you can eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... Uh, you may not eat, you shall not eat. And so that's a command. And then it's atta attached to the command is a sanction. A sanction meaning the word sanction is a broad category that can cover blessings or curses. So there's a sanction attached to it, which is in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. So death is threatened to Adam if he disobeys that command positive side of the sanction, which is the positive reward of eternal life if he obeys, is uh, stated in the promise of the tree of life. The tree of life is given there in the garden as a sign of the positive outcome, that if he passes the test, then he may eat of the tree of life and live forever. So there's death and life, and these are eternal sanctions, not just physical death and physical life. This is eternal death and eternal life is being threatened uh, in the in the garden in the covenant of works now the term covenant is not explicitly used the word oath is not explicitly used in genesis 2 mm -hmm. but uh, it's implied just by look just by looking at the text itself you see all of the elements of a covenant there and so um you don't have to have the word covenant or the word oath see that it is a covenant and later on in scripture in hosea 6 7 it is called a covenant um when mm -hmm. 
the prophet Hosea looks back to Adam and compares Adam and Israel and says, like Adam, Israel has transgressed the covenant. Um, so the idea that, that the arrangement between God and Adam in the garden is a covenant is woven into the fabric of biblical theology. It's also implied by Romans 5. In Romans 5, you have Paul making that contrast between the two Adams. The first Adam who disobeyed and brought death second Adam Christ who obeys and imputes his righteousness to us and brings us life. The fact that those two Adams are contrasted with each other um, supports the idea that uh, the, the, both of those things are covenantal. Obviously with Christ, that's a covenant. That's the covenant of redemption. That's the covenant between the father and the son. Christ obeys that covenant by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. And he is rewarded with eternal life. And then that reward is given to all those whom he represents. So if the second Adam's act of obedience in the context of a covenant, then logically the first Adam's act of disobedience must also be covenantal. It's obviously covenantal because it didn't just affect Adam. It also affected the whole human race. Mm-hmm. His death, his sin brought death the consequence of sin, the penal sanction of sin on all of humanity. So if one rejects the covenant of works, basically all the whole, the whole history of salvation or the, or the whole system of salvation just collapses. There's really nothing, nothing left. The whole fabric of biblical theology hangs on this concept of the covenant of works with Adam mm-hmm. in the garden. The whole rest of the Bible is saying that in spite of Adam's failure, God has made a way for us to be able to overcome the effects of Adam's sin and death and to eat again of the tree of life. Of course, the tree of life ultimately is Christ himself. So immediately after Adam's, Mm -hmm. God makes the promise in Genesis 3.15 that uh, even though Adam failed, he's going to send the seed of the woman who is going to do what Adam failed to do. He's going to crush the serpent's head. That was Adam's job. Uh, he, he was given a probationary test, which was to confront the serpent. God, God had a plan from the beginning. It wasn't some accident that, oh, where did the serpent come from? God had a beginning <laughs> that the serpent was going to go in there and tempt and test Adam, just like the devil tested Christ in the wilderness with the three temptations in the Gospels. And the temptation and the test was appointed by God to be the thing that Adam had to confront and pass in order to um, then be successful in his test or probation and then be allowed to eat of the tree of life. So, so when God, three, go ahead. I'm sorry. So when God was looking for Adam, it wasn't like the open theist where God didn't know where Adam was. It was covenantal language, really, right, that God was using there. Yep. That God was coming in judgment uh, when it says in Genesis 3 8 that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day uh, in Hebrew it says the Ruach Hayom Ruach is translated spirit or wind or breath uh, so it's the spirit of the day you're coming in the spirit of the day of judgment and this is judgment day in Genesis 3 8 
the covenant of works has been broken, so God is coming in judgment, and he begins his prosecution, and he examines them. And then in the very midst of pronouncing the judgment upon Adam, he also reveals the promise of the gospel. And this is the beginning of the covenant of grace, Genesis 3.15, first promise of the gospel, that there is going to be a seed of the woman, that is, there is going to be a, another Adam, a descendant of Adam, who is going to do what the first Adam failed to do. He's going to crush the serpent's head, and he's going to bring us to eternal life so that we can return to the garden and eat of the tree of life and live forever. Uh, so, Lee, I guess there are those out there who do not uh, see or believe in a covenant of works and yet hold to uh, Christ um, attaining a... Um, um, an obedience or requiring an obedience, right? An act of obedience of Christ, I think is the term. So um, in that case, that would be, just be terribly contradictory or just inconsistent in, in their thinking because what would Christ's act of obedience be in in, in point of? What is, what is he fulfilling if there's no covenant of works? Right. And, and actually, I would argue that I, I don't think there are very many cases of people that hold to that description that you just that you just laid out there of denying the covenant of works but affirming the imputation of the act of obedience of christ I'm not aware of anybody that that does that um i'm not going to name names <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe there are names but if they do they, they don't if they if they believe that then they don't really believe in the imputation of christ's act of obedience because what is that act of obedience it is is Genesis 3.15. It is Christ fulfilling what the first Adam failed to do. So it's uh, maybe they believe in something else. Maybe they believe in some kind of idea that Christ was sinless and never sinned, but they don't really believe that Christ kept the probationary test that the first Adam failed to keep. Remember, the, the Gospels tell us that after immediately after his baptism, he was... Uh, impelled by the spirit and brought into the wilderness specifically to be tested by the devil so christ had to be tested just like adam was tested in the garden and he had to confront the serpent as part of his test and part of confronting the serpent meant for christ it meant that he had to go to the cross he couldn't sidestep the cross and find some other way around it to achieve glory apart from the cross so his obedience, the specific obedience of Christ, is not only in keeping the law and the Ten Commandments, but obeying this, uh, this put, fulfilling this mission that God had placed upon him, that the Father had placed upon him, of bearing our sins on the cross and actively laying down his life for us on the cross, thereby defeating the serpent. So the imputation of that act of righteousness that's what paul is talking about in romans mm -hmm. 5 18 and 19. the one act of righteousness that christ fulfilled was his act of laying down his life on the cross in obedience to the father in order to fulfill the um probationary test so anyone who denies the covenant of works in the garden is not going to be able to see the work of Christ in the Gospels as being the fulfillment of a probationary test 
like Adam in the garden. And so their, their understanding of, quote unquote, the imputation of the active obedience of Christ is going to be very watered down to the point of non-existent. It's going to be like some sort of general idea that Christ had to be without sin. But it's not the idea of him fulfilling a test, passing right. a creation. Or at worst, maybe uh, assuming that man would have to do some of that of that uh, work mm -hmm. for acceptance. Yeah. Yeah, inevitably that's what it leads to is if you if you deny the covenant of works in the garden and then you deny as a result of that you deny the uh, imputation of the active obedience of Christ then logically you're going to end up saying that the good works that Christians do as part of our as the result of our sanctification those are the works that end up being what God accepts for our righteousness before God. Now they're they're going to say, of course, not perfect works, and it, you know, it's graciously accepted by God <laughs> and all this stuff. But then, but then if they go that route, then they're denying the justice of God. Uh -huh. Then they're saying that God doesn't demand perfect righteousness. Right. So. So it's like it's all tied together. It's it's one fabric again. If you take one, it all falls apart. There's nothing to impute if you reject either the covenant of works or the act of obedience of Christ. The doctrine of the covenant of works is the article by which the doctrine of justification stands or falls. It's That's like a little thread, a little thread on the edge of your uh, sweater. And if you start pulling on that thread, pretty soon the whole sweater unravels and exactly. you don't have the gospel anymore. <laughs> exactly. That's why I use the word fabric because that's what exactly what I was thinking. You're right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, so go ahead. I, what I was going to say, when I was um, a proponent of New Covenant theology, um, there was always that inconsistency, right, of holding to an act of obedience of Christ, but not holding to a works-based covenant in the garden. Hmm. There was there was always that, that inconsistency and just that tension there. And, of course, when you really dig into it, God willing, further and further, you discover that it is an inconsistency and you do adhere to the covenant of works as I did. Yeah. Yeah, there's a certain – I know what you're talking about. With with uh, New Covenant theology is kind of interesting because uh, they, they're, they're very biblicistic. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they want to say, well, there's no mention of a covenant in Genesis 2. The word covenant doesn't occur there. And so, therefore, there's no covenant of works, you know. And, and so you're right. So that kind of biblicistic understanding of Scripture, which doesn't see how Scripture all hangs together and, in, you know, doesn't see the two Adams construct of Romans 5 being this overarching structure that all of Scripture hangs together under. Exactly. That's, that's what leads to just saying, well, I just, you know, even though it seems inconsistent, I'm just going to preach this this way when I get to that text and preach the other thing when I get to the other text, you know? <laughs> it's funny. It's funny because it's exactly, it's funny because, you know, a lot of the modern day or what they call, instead of new covenant theologians, they call them progressive covenant theologians, right? It's trying to get closer and it's a via media position. But what I noticed is that even though that they, there's, even though it's positive, in the direction that they're going as far as acknowledging that the covenant is the backbone of scripture, 
they still don't go far enough and it still ends up being like dispensationalism in the long run. Yeah. For instance, if, for instance, when you listen to the dispensationalists, the problem is they're biblicists, like you said, like with the New Covenant theology. And they say, well, let's stick to the passage where we are and let's not look to other places in Scripture, right, to develop a, a cohesive biblical theology. And the point is, is they don't have a cohesive biblical theology at all, so it ends up making a mess out of the whole of Scripture. Yep. Another issue is um, progressive covenantalism is very similar to another view called monocovenantalism. Mm -hmm. Monocovenantalism is the view that all of the covenants of Scripture, and so monocovenantalists tend to um, agree that there is a covenant with Adam in the garden. And in fact, I think um, some of the progressive covenantalists do as well. Um, like Gentry and Wellam in their exactly. recent book. Uh, they do agree that there's a covenant there in the garden. But what they want to do is they want to say, and they're very influenced by a guy named um, uh, Dumbrell. Uh, Dumbrell wrote a book uh, like 30 years ago um, on covenant theology that argued this, that uh, the, the, the essence of their view is um, – even though the word covenant is not used in Genesis 2, that the Lord regretted that he had made man. Um, so Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it says in Genesis 6, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you, referring to Noah. And they argue, Gentry and Wellam argue, that that verb establish, um, this goes back to that word study I did <laughs> on looking at all the verbs that go with the word covenant. So the, the noun is berit, but the verb with it is the verb hakimoti, I will establish my covenant, from the verb kum. Uh, it's not from the verb karat, which is the normal normal construction for making a covenant is karat a berit. Karat means to cut, cut a covenant. And the idea behind that construction is that obviously um, covenant ratification ceremonies involve cutting the, an animal, right? Like in Genesis 15, cutting the pieces of the animals, the birds, and so on in half. And so that's, according to Gentry and Wellam, that's the language for making or initiating a new covenant, to karat a covenant. But here it uses a different construction. It doesn't use the word cut, it uses the word establish. And so they argue that that implies that the covenant already existed. So they use Genesis 6.18 to argue for the existence of the Adamic covenant. Yeah, I know exactly where that's from. They're, it's from their book, Kingdom Through Covenant. Right, right. Exa I have it on my library. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. the problem with that is this is monocovenantalism. Because now what you're saying is, is that all of the covenants, including the Adamic covenant in the garden, the Noahic covenant in Genesis 6.18, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, they're all just further expansions of one basic covenant. So really it's monocovenantalism. It's all one big covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. And so that means that there is no covenant of works, even though they're right in arguing that there's a covenant in the garden, they screw it all up because they make it into a covenant of grace. Exactly. Exactly. They, it's, it's when they say and they, and they actually they use the language um Edenic covenant right I think in that book the problem with it it's a contentless covenant there's it's there's no works in it at all right 
Um, like another another monocovenantalist is John Murray, who argues that the very definition of a covenant is that it's a sovereign administration of grace. So anytime there's a covenant, it is a covenant of grace by definition. So that means there's no such thing as a covenant of works. If you define a covenant as a covenant of grace, that's what covenant is. It's an administration of grace. Then you don't have a covenant of works. There's no covenant of works anywhere. It's not possible to have a covenant of works. Mm -hmm. um, another example of a monocovenantalist is, is Robert Lethem in his recent systematic theology that just came out a couple years ago. Uh, he defines the relationship between grace and law as being using this little phrase, grace constitutes, law regulates. He sees that principle that grace constitutes the relationship and law regulates the relationship as applying in every era of covenant history, including the pre-fall one. So even before the fall with Adam, grace constituted the relationship between God and Adam and law simply was there not as some sort of works principle, but simply to regulate the relationship. And so every covenant, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Mosaic, Davidic, New Covenant, are all under the same umbrella of grace constitutes law regulates. So just like John Murray, there's no place for a covenant of works in the system. And I think the slippery slope here is what I ran into before I became um, an adherent of uh, federalism, where the slippery slope is you cannot distinguish between law and gospel at that point. That's the key, mm. is distinguishing between law and gospel. And distinguishing between law and gospel in a federal context, that is, distinguishing between law and gospel as shorthand for law being the covenant of works and gospel being the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. Oneg, you were going to say something? Uh, no, I was going to mention one something that Lee had written uh, in regards to, he, he mentions, you mentioned, Lee, that um, in uh, classic Reformed covenant uh, theology that there are two historic positions within mainstream Reformed covenant theology. Right, and you, you mentioned that the first position is that the Mosaic Covenant is essentially a gracious covenant administered in a legal manner. Is that what you refer to when you're uh, of the monocovenantalism? Or is that something else? No, that's that's a little bit different. So, um, so historic Reformed theology, uh, classic Reformed theology, um, always affirmed the Adamic Covenant of Works. The monocovenantalists that we're talking about, like Gentry and Wellam, like Murray, like Lethem, they do not believe that God's relationship with Adam in the garden is a covenant of works. Now, what, what you do find, though, is that within Reformed, traditional Reformed theology, 17th century Protestant scholasticism, you do find that there is a difference of opinion over the Mosaic covenant. Not the Adamic Covenant, but the Mosaic Covenant. So the, the question is, is the oh. Mosaic Covenant a republication of the Adamic Covenant of Works in some way or other? And there were some, the majority, who said that the Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the Covenant of Grace in connection with Abraham and Genesis 3.15. But it was administered in a more legal manner 
And so Turretin is the classic example of somebody who holds to this. So Turretin is not a monocovenantalist. He understands the law gospel contrast. He understands the Adamic covenant of works. He, he agrees with the two-atom structure, first Adam, second Adam, the imputation of Christ's active obedience and all of that. But when it comes to the Mosaic covenant, he wants to say that the Mosaic covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. But he acknowledges that it has some works elements in it at the accidental level. So he makes this philosophical distinction between the essence and the accidents. We're not talking about car accidents. The phil it's an Aristotelian or phil philosophical distinction between the essence of something and the features of it that are not essential to it. Like for example, um, I mentioned car accidents, so I'll use the example of a car, right? The essence of a car is it has to have four wheels, has to have some sort of internal form of being able to move itself, not drawn by horse, right? But it has to be like an internal engine of some kind. It has to have a steering wheel. Those are essential to a car, to an automobile. Uh, the color of the car, whether it's black or green or red, those are accidental features. Uh, whether it has power steering or whether it has, a, you know, uh, an automatic transmission or a manual transmission, those are accidental features that don't change the essence of the car if you if you have one thing or the other it's still a car so that's the distinction between the essence and the accident and so turton said that the mosaic covenant as to the essence of it is a covenant of grace but it has accidental features such as the rigor of it the fact that israel was afraid of god at mount sinai because he came in the loud thunder and the trumpet sound the fact that it was all of the, there was this whole mass of ceremonial regulations that were like this big burden upon Israel that made them feel like they were under the burden of the law. These are all things that have a legal or works aspect to them, but they only operate at the accidental or like a surface structure of the covenant. The essence of it is a covenant of grace. That was his way of trying to maintain the concept that there is a works principle in the Mosaic law while at the same time trying to uphold the concept of one covenant of grace from Genesis 3.15 to the new covenant without any kind of dispensational break, you know. But there were others within the Reformed tradition who said that the Mosaic covenant itself is not an administration of the covenant of grace. It is a republication at the typological level of the Adamic covenant of works. So that Israel is viewed as a corporate Adam being placed in a garden-like situation with the land of Canaan being sort of like the Garden of Eden. And they're also being placed under a test just like Adam was under a test. And so as a nation, God made a national covenant with Israel pertaining to their retention of the land and that if they kept the law, they would retain the land. Remember the uh, fifth commandment, uh, honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. That sounds a lot like what God said to Adam in the garden, right? You have to right. yeah. obey this covenant so that you can eat of the tree of life. Um, so... This way of understanding things does not deny the unity of the covenant of grace at the underlying level. It's just saying that the covenant of grace, which began in Genesis 3.15, 
what's formalized as a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 continues on at the underlying level so that all individual elect Israelites were saved by believing in the Messiah to come under the terms of that Abrahamic covenant of grace. But God placed a typological overlay on top of that, which was the Mosaic law as a re republication of the Adamic works principle in order to prepare the way for Christ. So that Galatians 4, 4, Christ could be born under the law and fulfill the law so that Christ then becomes the end or the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10, 4. Mm -hmm. So Christ is not only the second Adam, he's the obedient Israelite. So again, if you reject that the Mosaic Covenant is a republication of the Covenant of Works, there goes the act of obedience of Christ again. Basically, it does it does away with it. There, there's no reason for it because he was born he was born under the law. Right. Exactly. So, uh, in your paper, you call the second um, the second position uh, where uh, you said it's quite wide it's a widespread opinion that the Mosaic Covenant is essentially, like you said, a republication of the Adamic Covenant of Works, and that the Mosaic Covenant was a subservient covenant, uh, since it was not set up as a competing means of salvation, but as a subserv as subservient to the Covenant of Grace. Exactly. That's that's the Marrow tradition we, we talked about at the beginning. Uh, the Marrow of modern divinity uses that language of the Mosaic Covenant being a subservient covenant. It was also held by um, Samuel Bolton, who was a commissioner to the Westminster Assembly. Uh, it was held by Thomas Boston and a few others. But it was not the majority view. The majority view was Turretin's view of the essence and the accident. But at least even Turretin has the accident. He has a works principle there somewhere in the mosaic, right? It may not be at the essential level, it's at the accidental level. Fine, but at least it's there because that provides the context for Galatians 4.4 4 and Romans 10.4, Christ as the fulfiller of the law for righteousness to all who believe. This concludes part one on the topic of covenant theology.